You're listening to the Achieving DevOps Podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Hi, everyone. Today, I wanted to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Abel Wong. Now, Abel works with me at Microsoft in, in a different group. He's a senior cloud developer advocate. Uh, his specialization is, is DevOps uh, in Azure with a background in app, app development. He's been doing it now for many years. He works with, uh, I love this, Donovan Brown's League of Extraordinary Cloud DevOps Advocates. Uh, but before then, he spent many years as a process consultant. He's a certified Scrum Master um, and also ran his own software company. Now, Abel's a lifelong coder. I think you're going to find our conversation very interesting. Now, we cover a lot of ground in this episode, so much so that I, I split our talk into three parts. Uh, and this, this is part one. Let's talk about what got Abel first thinking about DevOps. How do you get director-level buy-in? Uh, what's the power that we can have with like one success story? And, and what's the number one pitfall that he sees with many change um, efforts? I think you'll enjoy this talk. So Abel and I both had some ups and downs this year as far as our health. And we start talking about how um, the things that we learned about our, our health and managing uh, these things applies directly to DevOps. Enjoy. I know like, like uh, for me, I found a parallel with, with DevOps because it's like um, I, what I found that with my health, um, mm -hmm. I was eating the wrong things and I wasn't exercising, you know. So like every diet book ever written is like eat less exercise more but yeah how do you get there when you're couch bound and we set ourselves up for failure because we do these big new year's resolution type things and i read a book called the power of habit and it talked about how there's little things that can accumulate that little habits like instead of trying to say i'm going to lose 20 pounds say i'm going to do a push-up every time i go to the bathroom yeah and that way those those little things you can kind of ramp up and ratchet a little bit and that way over time you're building up these habits that get stronger and stronger and, and you become a healthy person yeah. without trying to set trying to do too much too soon like you said a sprint yeah and it's really 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 important you know unfortunately i think we don't we don't or a lot of us don't get into that whole man i, I get better get myself healthy until something actually happens until the um, wheels come off yeah i think yeah. i got super lucky um because i was in pretty good shape when I got diagnosed. The treatment, um, all the doctors said the treatments, like I handled the treatments extraordinarily well and I bounced back extremely extremely fast as well. Um, to give you some example, I didn't take any time off during that entire year that I was, um, that I was going through treatment. Now, of course, I couldn't travel uh, because I had to go into treatment all the time, but I still worked the entire time. Um, so our health is super, super important and it's, it's better to take care of it before, like you said, the wheels fall off. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about about um, yourself and kind of what you do for with um, the Azure DevOps team. Ah. Yeah. So for those that don't know me, my name is Abel. I guess my official title is I'm a principal cloud advocate uh, specializing in DevOps at Microsoft. My claim to fame at Microsoft is, well, I haven't always been a DevOps person. Really, I'm a code writer. I write code. I write code really, really fast. Um, in fact, I'm that guy at Microsoft that writes code at ridiculously fast speeds, right? So that's that's my claim to fame. 
I kind of fell into the whole DevOps space um, kind of by accident. Uh, I, I, this was about, what, 10 years ago. I had my own software company, which which we sold. And I was like, yay, now I'm a billionaire and I can never work again. <laughs> it totally didn't happen like that. <laughs> I did not get billions of dollars or even millions of dollars. I was like, oh, man. All right. I'm still going to have to work. Um, but I could be a little bit picky about what I what job to pick, right? I didn't have to just pick up any any old gig. I, I had the luxury of time to be like, what what would be interest me? Um, and what really interested me was why did some projects fail and some projects succeed? And actually, that's so of, funny. That's the same thing that interested me. Go ahead. Yeah, but mostly. Almost all the projects I've, that I've worked on failed and a very small percentage succeeded. And by fail, I mean went over time, over budget, too many bugs, or we deliver software and people were like, yeah, this isn't what we want, right? Um, and at first, I, my conclusion was, oh, because the developers sucked. Right. And because then people I were smart enough. Yeah. yeah. Clearly, they suck, right? But right. then I'm like, wait a minute. I'm the developer so clearly i don't suck <laughs> <laughs> clearly <laughs> clearly yes uh no i'm kidding but no, what i realized was that a lot of the groups that, i mean the the software world is really small so even when i shifted jobs to jobs or groups to group a lot of time the core developers were still the same people and still sometimes project failed and sometimes they succeeded and what the conclusion that i came to was it's all about process the right way to write software, right? And so this was still back when Agile was kind of a, a new thing and people were like, eh, maybe Agile, but we've always done it using a waterfall way, so why would you change, right? Um, so I became an Agilist and a process consultant and um, I was all about writing the software. This is how you write software the right way, the right process, and this way you can be successive if you write in an iterative fashion, it's, you know, just the whole Agile stuff, right? Um, after a while, I started noticing that my software projects were success were very successful. We were writing stuff on time. We were writing stuff and keeping our, our bug counts down and our technical debt way low. Um, and we were writing software that the customer really wanted because we were constantly course correcting, right? And, and sprint after sprint after sprint, look at this, we are doing great. But the problem we were having, and we were having two, the, the project that I was working on, we were having two week sprints. The problem we were having now is we could not get our code into production fast enough. We delivered piles of code that did beautiful stuff, but to get the and code they just into, sat there waiting on environments. Yeah, to get it into production would take about a week's time, mm -hmm. right? Of a bunch of manually moving stuff, tweaking stuff, configuring stuff, debugging stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, if our sprint is two weeks long, immediately you can see things start backing up, right? And it just it was it just didn't work out very well. So that got me into the whole idea of CICD, and that's when DevOps was just starting to make noise in our industry. Um, and uh, that's kind of how I fell into DevOps. And then, of course, it helps that Donovan Brown is like one of my best friends ever. Like we've known each other for over 20 years. And, and so he became huge in DevOps, and he was just like, dude, you need to do this. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. This is what I do anyway, so sure, let's do it. And um, so that's what I do, or that's how I got into DevOps. Uh, what I do now, I work with the Azure DevOps team. Um, the couple things I do, sometimes I write code for them. 
Uh, a lot of times I fly around the world speaking to our developers, so I want to connect with developers everywhere, get them fired up about our technologies, about Azure, and about using DevOps best practices to get into Azure. That's interesting. So, um, do you sometimes find, like you and I, we, we both speak quite frequently to developers, and it's very easy to get engineers on board. Mm -hmm. I've never really had a problem um, with that, but it's hard to get that director level buy-in. A lot of times we're still practicing water scrum fall where our projects are still run as projects, not as <laughs> programs. Yep. And it's like, you guys go ahead, you developers, you nerds go ahead and just keep on churning out code. And But everything's still being, it's, this is a CapEx, OpEx world, right? Right, 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 right. right. Do, you, do you face that where it's like... Um, we have no problem having the developers launch, get into this, and even IT people, but the director level still thinks this is a hobby or a fad. Yes, I do run into this a lot, and it's highly, highly frustrating. So trying to do this DevOps transformation, or even before you go DevOps transformation, if you want to do like an Agile type of transformation, trying to do that from the ground up is insanely hard, right? You know, yeah. Just it's... I've seen some companies successful, but it's so difficult to do. The amount that you have to fight is, is it, it's almost monumental. Um, it works much better when it comes from the top down, from the CEO on down when they decide, hey, guess what? This is the right way to do things, let's do it. Now, that said, I do have special conversations that I have with uh, upper management, whether it's director level or above. And basically, it starts off with, yes, you love the way you used to do so. You have the whole CapEx, all that nonsense. You, you know, you, you love having your, your, your Gantt charts and all that nonsense. I get it. But here's a very important question. And you're always like, well, we need to know how much money we, we can spend. <laughs> and so I asked them, I said, very, very seriously now, like I'm not being flipped for once. How, <laughs> how accurate are any of your predictions and they all get the same look on their face and it's like yes of course it's completely inaccurate because everybody's making stuff up so i'm like okay so you're married to this process that gives you all this data that you know is false and now you're going to base your budget decisions on these false assumptions why because that's the way you used to do things but does it really provide you any value whatsoever no, it doesn't. How much money do you spend? You know how much money you spend on this particular project? You spend enough money until you run out of money. That's how long it costs, or that's how much it costs. Always. You can say, I only want to spend $50,000 on it, or maybe I only want to spend $10 million on this project. That's great, because your project will never, ever, ever be done, right? It can just be done enough where you can say, you know what, that's close enough and we don't want to spend any more money on it. But otherwise, projects get done when they get done. Right? And so, of course, upper management never really wants to hear that from me. Um, but if you start bashing them in the head long enough, they start to get the picture of, look, the old way of doing things, the way you want to do things because that's the way it used to, you've been failing project after project after project after project. When the project fails, we all play numbers games to make it look like we're not failing. Right? That's just what management does. This is what we've been doing forever. Let's do this a better way, where we can actually predict in a much more uh, accurate manner of how this project is going to be. Right? And all you really need is one success. One team, one success, and it starts catching on like wildfire. <laughs> 
right? So back in my days when I was a process consultant, that was one of the most fun things that I did, which was I was I got embedded into software teams and I would bring them to a level of success, a couple of sprints. Once they get the idea of how to do it, I look at management, I look at the team, I said, you guys got this and then I am out, right? And I get right. to Right. Um, I, I really, really miss that because I don't get to do that anymore. I just get to tell people, do it like this and it'll be perfect. But I, I, I don't get to sit down with them and, and help them reach that goal. It's um, in the in the forward of the book, you're saying, hey, listen, guys, there's no such thing really as a unicorn versus, you know, a plow horse. If yeah. you want to innovate faster, if you want to perform better. We've already proven. I, I imagine these numbers came from Dora. Uh, you're talking about 46 times faster, more frequent mm -hmm. deployment, seven times mm -hmm. lower change failure rate, yep. you know, 2,500 times faster lead time for changes, and 2,600 times faster MTTR. In other words, we're able to detect and recover from problems faster, like on an order of a thousands. Yeah, like none of this is theory anymore. I remember when I first started talking DevOps, it was all theory. You know what? If you implement DevOps best practices, we think that you're going to outperform everyone right. else. We've been doing this DevOps things for long enough that it's it's a real thing. And these are real empirical numbers. We know for a fact you do DevOps best practices. Guess what? You will quickly, easily out innovate your competitors. Mm -hmm. Those numbers. Um... Is it, is it possible that we are, um, the numbers are skewed somewhat because the survey returns are coming from DevOps friendly organizations and people? I don't know how they picked up those numbers, right? Uh, I, I didn't really follow those. So I, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that question because because I haven't researched that enough. Yeah. And the, but my, my gut thought is, you know what, it could be, um, but if you ignore just the massive quantity of the number and look at the trend, it's, it, it's still very, very clear. You know what, mm -hmm. implement DevOps best practices, you're gonna out-innovate your competitors. If yeah. your competitors are out-innovating you, guess what happens to you? You're gonna be obsolete. None of us wants to be obsolete. So do it, implement best, DevOps best practices. Is that <laughs> And I, I like what you said, you know, all you need is really is, is a success story. And I had so many people tell me that. It's like, don't try to change the whole organization in every work stream at once. Don't just say, we're going to do DevOps. Let's try it. Start with one team, one workflow, and try tinkering, experimenting, and yeah. provide like an open lab kind of a thing where we talk about our failures pretty openly and the, our wins openly. And that's how you create the ground conditions for success. Yeah, that's super important too. Um, it, it, when when people are trying to make this DevOps transformation, number one, don't try to do too much too quickly, right? Don't try to transform your entire organization. That's not going to work. Find one team. And even with that one team, don't try to fix everything at once. Don't look at all the videos that we produce at Microsoft or read the best practices and, and then turn the team and say, this is what we're going to do, right? That's right. a recipe for disaster. Pick one thing. Pick what hurts the most and do that, right? There are some teams that I know that don't even use source control, right? They're still using shared drives. In, or what is it, 2019, they're still doing that. All right, clearly what hurts the most is, yeah, you guys need to use a source control system. I don't care which source control system you use, but use one, right? So let's try to fix that. Um, there are teams where, surprising enough, they still don't have CI, right? They check in their code. There isn't this concept of you check in the code immediately kicks off a build. 
So that's an easy low bar, right? That's an easy fix next thing to do. Wow, that hurts the most? Let's do that then. Let's let's get you a, a CI system in place. Um, and then you start seeing, okay, what else hurts the most? A lot of times it's like, oh, we can't get our code into, into our dev environment and production environments fast enough. Oh, let's start building out your CD pipelines. And then they might realize things like, oh man, we've got these pipelines, but how do we test in time, right? If our sprint's two weeks long and our functional end-to-end -end testing takes two months to do, how do we ensure quality? So then all of a sudden you start saying, oh, you know what? This is where things like uh, unit tests become incredibly important. Not even just a nice to have in a DevOps world, they become an absolute necessity. Otherwise, you don't have the ability to ensure a good enough quality, right? So you have to learn, okay, this is how we write unit tests. These are how you write good unit tests. And this is how we run the unit tests during our pipelines and things like that. And then all the great unit tests in the world, you still need somebody to exercise those buttons, right? So maybe you're gonna add some automated UI tests here and there. Um, of course, eyeballs still need to look, right? So you still need a QA team to do a little bit of poking, but the amount of poking and running just sheer test scripts that they do have to do drops significantly because of all the automated tests that we have, whether it's automated unit tests or automated UI testing. All right, and so, so then you, know, you, you just start figuring out things one at a time, what hurts the most, let's fix that. Uh, a lot of times um, when I'm working with, with companies you know, um, and you know, they, they have CI/CD systems in place, they're writing good tests, uh, but they'll turn to me and they'll be like, but our databases, those are really slow. Yeah, How, what do we do layer. with databases, right? Um, so then that's when I introduce them to, okay, this is how you do DevOps with databases, right? You wanna be able to store your schema in some fashion in your source control right alongside your source so everything can get versioned. And then your pipeline needs to have the ability to take those schemas, generate the scripts necessary to bring, to automatically bring whatever the version is in your environment match what was checked into source control. So now the gold standard for what your schema is, is what's in your source control, right? And there's a, there's a couple different ways that you can do that. Some of them I like better than others, uh, but there are ways that you can implement that in your pipeline as well, right? And so then after all of that, there are teams that can do all this, including their database stuff. And then they're like, oh, security. What do we do about security, right? So then you start teaching them how to add security in. Um, you, it, you start teaching them the importance of pull requests and, and how it's not just nice to have, once again, but it should be mandatory, right? Every developer check-in should have a pull request associated with it where the team reviews it. They can review it, number one, they review it for a whole bunch of stuff to make sure the code is written well, to make sure there's no weird, strange bugs in place, to make sure that the pull request being checked in uh, for this particular feature also has a good set of unit tests uh, that, that tests everything that they can think of. Um, the pull requests can even have security people, right, to study the code, make sure that, uh, that, that there are no bad security habits being followed or anything like that. And same with the database people, right? A lot of times database uh, DBAs don't want automation to automatically push changes to the database because they're they're weary or they're leery of the code that these tools can generate right so what i usually tell them is it's not that we don't need you it's just that where we need you is going to shift left closer to in the beginning when the developer check, checks in the code. So the developer can check in code, which can create changes to the schema. Now you as a DBA in the pull request, you can look and see, oh, these are the changes. These are the scripts that get generated and that will get run. This all looks good. 
Or you can look at it and say, ooh, this developer doesn't know what they're talking about and immediately flag it, right, and, and fail the pull request. But all these things, you don't try to do it all at once, right? right. You find what hurts the most, address one thing and one thing at a time, slowly keep on going until eventually you reach the state of DevOps Nirvana, which is kind of never, because there's always <laughs> there's always something, some more improvements that you can do, right? DevOps is definitely a journey where you're constantly getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. Yeah, it's, it's in a way, people miss, they lose sight of the fact that um, the Phoenix Project came from that book, The Goal, Mm -hmm. And the goal was talking about the scientific method. And in mm -hmm. the scientific method, you kind of make a guess and you form a hypothesis and you pick out some success conditions. And typically you change, you tweak one thing at a time and see if, if things change. That takes time. Yeah. Yep. You don't yep. try to change everything at once because well, we're overwhelming people. Yeah. Yeah. And you, need, and you need to constantly be running experiments, right? Because what we, we think we know a lot of stuff, but... The reality is we barely know anything. So the only way we can find out is by experimenting, by gathering data, looking at that data and using that data to help us decide, is this, are we going in the right direction or are we not? Okay, I, that's I all the time we of... have for today. Uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to cover part two of this really discuss interesting discussion with Abel. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, Please share it with your friends and coworkers, and we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.